So I find it uh, a very helpful practice at night when the sky is clear, not like tonight when it's rainy, but when the sky is clear to look up and see the stars and the planets and so on, and to think that there's other solar systems, other universes, and there's other sentient beings there. And these sentient beings have forms that I have no idea what they look like, probably very different than ours, maybe even different sense faculties than ours. But what I do know about all these countless beings is that they're exactly like me and they want happiness and not suffering. So sometimes when I look out and see the stars and think of the beings there, then I do a short meditation on the four measurables while I'm standing there, sending them love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And especially hoping that one day they can meet the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha and receive teachings and practice the path and attain the result. And then when I generate bodhicitta, I try and remember that it's for all these beings, not just the ones I know, but so many countless beings. And so with that motivation, let's listen to teachings this evening. Okay, so we're in the middle of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion, in the middle of Volume 3, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature, and in the middle of a chapter called Karma, the Universe, and Evolution. And we might finish the chapter this evening, we'll see. Okay, so the section we're at is on page 152 at the bottom. Karma, instinctual behavior, and our bodies. So in this old chapter, we've been talking about the interplay between our actions and our mind that creates those actions and the physical universe, physical causality. Yeah. And it's, uh, there's definitely an interplay and things... Uh, intersecting and affecting each other, but it's really hard to nail it down and say it's this and not that and to describe how it works. 
But it's an interesting thing to think about and to make us aware of, you know, that our actions uh, influence not only things in this life, not only what we experience in future lives, but it also plays a role in the environment that we're born into and uh, even in a universe and how it forms. Okay, So just this whole thing of feeling into the interconnectedness of so many things that we usually don't think of as interconnected. Okay, so as Holiness says, both science and Buddha Dharma agree that sentient beings have certain instinctual behaviors, but how they account for them varies. Science looks to genetic makeup for answers, while the Buddhist sage Baba Viveka said that calves instinctually look to their mother for milk because of latencies on their mind streams from previous lives when they had acted in a similar way. Okay, so that makes sense. If you've been born as a, uh, a cow or a calf many, you know, in previous lifetimes, and there's that habitual tendency, that latency on the mind for, uh, you know, looking for your mama because you know that you can get food, then the newly born calf, you know, looks for its mama. And it's, it's because of the latencies on the mind stream. Whereas science looks at it completely as a, a product of, of um, physical things that form into genes and chromosomes. And then somehow those things make the calf look for, the, look for its mother and, and get nourished. But the calf looking for its mother is a cognitive thing that the calf is doing. Yeah. And so then how do you kind of a physical thing like the uh, pulsing or you know chemical electrical reactions in a material object, a neuron or a whole cluster of neurons in your brain, can that translate into conscious experience? Yeah, kind of like, you know, can the table translate into conscious experience? Difficult, yeah. Well, is our brain really that much different? It's just made of, you know, atoms and molecules like the table. But on the other hand, we do know that, uh, you know, there are some correlations. But see, correlation is not the same as cause. Yeah. So when we have certain emotions, there might be certain areas of the brain that are reacting. And we have, when we have, uh, you know, to see certain things, they know different areas of the brain that are the visual centers and the audio centers and so on. <clears throat> so there's, there's that mapping. So there's some correlation between when there's a conscious experience and something going on in the brain. But does that mean that the brain caused the, the conscious experience? Cause and correlation are very different. 
you know, or does the visual experience itself cause the brain to do all these things, or do the two come together? So this is the kind of thing when His Holiness uh, has conferences with different scientists, uh, you know, the the ideas about these kinds of things fly, and His Holiness always concludes, this needs more research. Okay. But it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And last week we talked about the space um, particle and how it has the potencies for all the other uh, physical traits. And, you know, again, it doesn't say exactly how those things affect each other, but it does. I think the winds, you know, that are together with the winds that are said to be one nature with different consciousnesses. This doesn't apply to gross consciousnesses, but more subtle ones. Um, <clears throat> the wind is the movement uh, side. Yeah, The uh, mind is the conscious side, experiential side. So I think, you know, the wind has something to do with it. But don't ask me how. I cannot explain it. Yeah. But uh, like His Holiness, we read last week, he said, you know, the Buddhas know this and the very highly realized yogis know this. So track them down and ask them, okay? Um, And they might answer, but I don't know if we would even understand the answer. Yeah? We ask a question, but can we understand the answer? Okay, to continue. Nevertheless, certain instincts are related to the type of body a sentient being has. Okay, so this this part is uh, more evident to us. We are in the desire realm where the bodily constituents of beings are such that desire, the emotion of desire, is dominant. What do you think? True or not true? It's true, isn't it? You know, the the me- mental state of craving, desire, I want, I'm attached. Uh, you know, whatever species you look at in the desire realm, yeah, it afflicts all of us. I mean, from the stink bugs and the flies to, you know, whoever else you want to think of. The, the, you know, this is the prominent feeling. Okay, or the prominent mental state that really drives our lives. And, you know, when they talk about the will to live, I think a lot of it has to do with attachment. Yeah, and especially when you're very attached to things, you don't want to die. And that attachment is also what causes the fear of death because you're giving up your whole ego identity and everything you've ever desired and been attached to because none of it comes with you when you die. And so that strong attachment causes, you know, incredible fear of who am I going to be without this? Like even our body, you know, who am I going to be if I don't have this body? And then 
craving, craving. I want a body, I want a body, I want a body. And then, as they say, be careful what you want. You might get it. And so we wind up being born in another samsaric body that gets old and sick and dies. Okay. So we are in the desire realm where the bodily constituents of beings are such that desire is dominant. Thus, we have many biological needs and desires, and our mind craves these. Okay. So desire is the one that goes first. Then when our desires are frustrated, when we can't get what we want, or we got it, and then it gets broken, it gets lost, it disappears, or we got it, and then we realize it wasn't as good as we thought it was, so we're disappointed, then the all the anger type of emotions come. Yeah, because what we desire, the fulfillment of what we desire is frustrated. Yeah. And we don't just sit there and go, well, I can't get my chocolate too bad. You go, I want my chocolate. And how dare you take my chocolate? You know, nobody gave you permission to take my chocolate. It's mine. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And then wars start. Not over chocolate, but chocolate is a symbol of our attachments. Okay, so thus we may have many biological needs and desires, and our minds crave these. Some animal species are vegetarian. Others eat meat. This is not primarily due to karma, but to the physical condition of their bodies, their genetic makeup and biological functions. So by the kind of body different beings have, they need different nutrition to keep their body alive. So he's saying that is the factor that principally determines whether somebody is carnivore or herbivore. However, the existence of these types of animal bodies on this planet is related to the general collective karma of the sentient beings on this planet. The fact that a particular sentient being is born in a carnivore's body is a ripening result of that person's individual karma. Okay? So when he said the existence of these type of animal bodies on this planet is related to the general collective karma of the beings, okay? So, you know, the beings have different uh, collective karmas, karma you created in a previous time together with others, you know, in a certain situation. So maybe that uh, that might influence populations, you know, which populations are born as what and what they eat and so on because of things they did together as, as groups in the past. Um, but in terms of an individual sentient being, uh, you know, their body is the ripening result of their own individual karma. Okay. So then it's interesting, well, then why are some human beings carnivores and some are herbivores? 
Yeah. Is that only because of this life? Are there tendencies from previous lives, you know, going? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I was raised, uh, my family ate meat, and that was it, and that's how you receive nourishment. Anybody else family like that? You never questioned it, you know? That's what you eat, and in fifth grade or f sixth grade, when they told you the, you know, remember they used to tell you the nutritional things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there was meat and there was mashed potatoes and there was some vegetable that you didn't want to eat. And and those were the, the dietary groups, right? Yeah. And then there was dessert and you had to make all gone before you got that one. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, we were raised like that, but then, you know, some of us, something happened in our life, and we just decided we aren't eating meat anymore. And our bodies adapted and adjusted, and there was no problem. Other people try and, and become vegetarian. They have health problems, you know. So it's it's really interesting. You know, why would one person have a health problem and another person wouldn't? That ha could have to do with their karma, of which because the karma affects which body they take. But it might be the way the digestive system works and the overall functioning of that body that is going to determine whether you know they're healthy eating. Uh, you know, just a vegetarian diet. So, you know, so you see when you look at these things, there's so many different factors that can be coming together here. Okay. How many of you had maybe uh, some specific events that made you become vegetarian? Yeah. How many of you became vegetarian because you had to? You came here and... <laughs> You had no choice. <laughs> yeah, anybody? One person? How, how many people became vegetarian because your friends were talking about it? Because of the Dharma. Okay. And thinking about the fact that other living beings died. Yeah. When we did the Vajrasattva retreat in Canada, it was over Canadian Thanksgiving and American Thanksgiving. And on that retreat, I started purifying the number of birds I had consumed over the course of my lifetime and was dedicating all the merit for these millions and millions of turkeys. And that was the end. So now that we're coming up on Thanksgiving, I thought it might be timely to share that for mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for me it was, I was traveling in Europe and we went to a supermarket in Germany and got some uh, sausage kind of thing. So, and we brought them back and we cooked them. We were camping and we cooked them. And then I cut open, cut it open, and blood came out. And that was it for me, you know. I was driving on I-95 coming home from work one night, coming out of, off the 520 bridge or something. We were kind of flying by each other, and this big, huge semi-tractor trailer came by 
piled with cages of chickens. And their feet were hanging out of the cages. They were half bald, and there was hundreds of them on this thing, all strapped in, going someplace to get butchered. Yeah. And that was what really threw it over the edge. Yeah. 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 And when I was in Paris, we walked in the area where they butchered animals, and there were just the the big uh, uh, garbage things, you know, that they have huge ones, filled of cow's heads. Yeah, it was, yeah. So, you know, because you, you just think about it, it's like, I don't want to eat somebody else's body, and I would not want anybody else to eat mine unless there was a famine and starvation or something like that. But just for the heck of it, for lunch. Okay. The function of the biological systems of an individual's body relates more to natural biological laws than to karma. Although karma is involved when that person experiences pain or pleasure from his or her body. Okay, so if you have stomach problems, it's because of, you know, the physical things going on in your stomach. But when you experience pain from that, that's a result of uh, negative karma. Okay, so I don't, the negative karma doesn't make you have stomach problems. Yeah, the stomach problems arise from the biological function of the body, but the karma is what makes us experience pain from that. Our discomfort when we have a cold is due to our karma. Our catching a cold depends on the presence of the virus near us, sanitation in the area, and the state of our immune system and to some extent, our karma. Okay, Like, do we happen to go in that place where all of that is happening? However, our hand being the nature of matter and our minds being the nature of clarity and cognizance are not due to karma. These are simply the nature of those phenomena. Okay, so we, we function by biological physical, chemical laws, and the law of karma. Yeah. The possibility of having a specific combination of genes in a fertilized egg is one in 70 trillion. Why a particular sentient being's mind stream is attracted to that particular zygote and is born in it as a result of her... Uh, Oh, why? This this sentence was weird. Why a particular sentient being's mind stream is attracted to that particular zygote and is born in it is a result of his or her karma. Yeah. So it makes the the you know when craving and clinging are ripening at the time of death, it makes a particular uh, physical form uh, appear to the mind as really beautiful and attractive. And then, you know, 
we're sitting there going, I, I'm leaving this body, I want another one. So we go towards what seems attractive to us, which, you know, may be a hell being's body, but at that moment of the karma ripening, it appears as something desirable. My being born in this body is an effect of my karma, but my body itself is due to the sperm and egg of my parents. My height is due to my genes and diet, but my being born in a body with these genetic predispositions was influenced by my karma. So the karma will influence what what body we're born into, but then the health of that body you know, then, like, or or how tall you grow or whatever, then there's a whole bunch of other uh, causes of that. That's not, you know, karma. That could be your diet, the environment you live in, and so on. Because we know that not everybody with the same uh, genes grows, grows up to look exactly alike or be the same height or whatever. And it is important to distinguish the role of karma vis-a-vis the general characteristics of a species and the experience of an individual in that species. Okay. For example, it is doubtful that human beings having hair and fish having scales is related to karma. Yeah, that probably has to do with the evolution of those beings, because if you're swimming in an ocean, having long hair is going to be a pain in the neck, you know? And, and if you're a human being, having scales, I don't know, maybe they're... What would scales on a human being be like? Would they be itchy? Or, you know, then they, maybe they had, we would have beauty contests about scales and products to make your scales more attractive. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, but that all is due to natural laws, okay? (laughs) Okay, so human beings having hair is due to natural laws. However, my being born in a body with genes causing baldness is a result of my individual karma. There you go. Okay, so what individual karma, what you did to be bald, who knows? I have no idea, you know? And whether you like being bald or don't like being bald, that's going to be, that depends on your present mind and how much you're influenced by what society tells you you're supposed to look like, you know? And then that's influenced by how much we buy into what society tells us we're supposed to look like. Still, that evolution of human bodies in general occurred the way it did, with the potential to be bald, was, uh, with the potential to be bald, was in part a function of the collective karma of sentient beings who had created the causes to be born in these bodies which includes me. So if you're born in the kind of body that can go bald, that has the potential to go bald, 
the body having the potential to be bald is the more um, the quality of that species. But you're, you know, going that you have the potential from from the genes. But then if you go bald, that's more. It's still the physical function, but it's that's going to depend on your karma, too. Yeah. Okay. As you can see, this is a complex topic, (laughs) says His Holiness. The extent to which the various systems of cause and effect, physical, biological, psychological, karmic, and so on, are interrelated and influence one another is not easy to delineate. Although Darwin's theory of evolution does not address the issue of what sentience is or how beings' mind streams came to be associated with the various physical structures that are their bodies, it can explain the general physical evolution of the various forms of life on our planet. Buddhists would add that the karma of the sentient beings who will be born in those bodies influence the type of sense organs and some of the features of the bodies in these various realms. Okay, so remember he was saying before that when uh, a universe starts to evolve, the sentient beings who are going to be born there, their karma can influence how it uh, evolves. And when uh, there is, uh, right before... Uh, different beings' minds take different physical things as their bodies. Yeah, that's another moment when uh, the general karma can can affect things. Some Buddhist scriptures and cultural legends describe other versions of evolution. According to the treasury of knowledge, the first human beings whose minds were less afflictive than ours had bodies made of light. But as their thoughts degenerated and they became greedy, their bodies became coarser and eventually were composed of material as they are now. So according to this, the original beings with bodies of light, they could not uh, commit the negativity of stealing because they didn't rely on food to eat. And they didn't have possessions. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know. If you have a certain kind of body in a certain realm, then maybe you can't, you know, create certain kinds of negative karma. Whereas if you have a body in a different realm, you you might be very inclined to create negative karma. I mean, if you're born as a carnivore, you know, as a lion or a tiger, then, you know, to stay alive, you have to kill. So, you know, your karma threw you into that body where you're again creating negative karma. Mm. Yet another view, okay, His Holiness loves to bring this last one up. Yet another view (laughs) is the Tibetan legend that the Tibetan race came into being through the union of an ogress and a monkey. This is a compromise between the Darwinian theory that humans descended from apes 
and the scriptural view that the first humans had bodies of light. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so the Tibetans say they are, you know, descendants from an ogress and a monkey. And somehow Chenrezig figures in there, too. I can't, anybody remember how? Was Chenrezig the monkey or something? Yeah. So, I don't know. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So more research is needed. See, I told you he said that. <laughs> I hope the above discussion will stimulate you to do further investigation and to understand the complexity of interdependence. And it is complex. And that's when, you know, I read certain things in the and you know online and it's like whose fault is this they want to you know pick one person and it's that person's fault and nothing is that simple things occur in a whole milieu and that person you know people are influenced by things way back in previous lives by earlier in this life by all sorts of stuff and, you know, so to say, you know, what, what happened in such and such an event, I mean, it's so complex. If, and just to blame one individual. I mean, there may be some individuals that have a stronger foot in the door in causing that. But still, you know, how many conditions influence them, you know? And as we were... You know, uh, Aryadeva talks about in chapter four of the 400. Uh, a leader can't be a leader unless followers follow that leader. <laughs> yeah? So a leader has to, you know, is influenced by their own thoughts, but also, you know, having the followers and having to please the followers or whatever it is. Yeah? And so, uh, yeah, things are get quite complicated. Okay, so that's the end of chapter 6. We are now on chapter 7, which is called Revolving and Cyclic Existence, the 12 Links of Dependent Origination. So chapter 7 starts, The process of rebirth in samsara is illustrated by the wheel of life. So the cover of the book has part of the wheel of life. Okay, if you can see it. Um, part, not the whole thing. So I'll describe the different parts, and, but then next week we'll have a, a diagram, a picture to show. So on page 230, there's the full one. On page 216, there's a picture of the inner the two inner circles and a little bit of the third circle. The process of rebirth in samsara is illustrated by the wheel of life. This painting of the samsaric cycle of existence has its origins in the time of the Buddha. So the king of Vatsa, whose name was Udayana, presented a jewel robe to the king of Magadha, whose name was Bimbasara, and Bimbasara consulted with the Buddha about an appropriate gift to send in return, and the Buddha recommended a 
acting of the wheel of life that has the verses below uh, in the text here uh, written on the painting. Upon contemplating the wheel of life, King Uddiyana attained realizations. Okay, so here are the verses that were written on it. This picture doesn't seem to have them, or they may be cut off at the bottom. Okay, practicing this and abandoning that, enter into the teaching of the Buddha. Like an elephant in a thatch house, destroy the forces of the Lord of Death. Those who, with thorough conscientiousness, practice this disciplinary doctrine will forsake the wheel of birth, bringing dukkha to an end. So those are the two verses that are at the bottom of the painting. Okay. So so you can see it talks about how you get born in samsara and how you leave samsara, okay? Very generally. The wheel consists of a series of concentric circles held in the mouth of the anthropomorphized Lord of Death, who symbolizes our impermanent nature. Okay, so you can see the Lord of Death, yeah, with his fangs biting into the wheel. You can see his two hands, you can see his his two legs. Okay, and he's holding that wheel because impermanence and death control the whole thing. Okay, because everything's changing all the time. What is, is going out of existence. Okay, so often when we talk about impermanence, it focuses on things uh, disintegrating, going out of existence. But we also have to remember at the same time something is disintegrating, it's also uh, something is arising. Yeah, because whatever was uh, caused or arose due to causes and conditions, just by depending on causes and conditions, it's going to disintegrate. But when it disintegrates, it changes into something else. So whatever it changes into is the new thing that has arisen. So in the teachings, when it emphasizes just the side of disintegrating, disintegrating, the purpose of doing that is to help us with our attachment to things that are by nature impermanent, okay? Because when you really attach something, you want it, and you think all your happiness is going to be fulfilled by getting it. But when you can see that whatever it is that you want is never going to remain the same as it was when you, when you wanted it. Okay, and so uh, there's so many good examples of that. I, th- I think romantic relationships are just a fantastic example of that. You know? And I remember in the early years of the Abbey, there was um, one, one woman who came a lot, and she brought her niece. Her niece was maybe 13, 14 years old, so she was really starting to get interested in boys. So one day we were going down to Coeur d'Alene and we were taking her with us. 
I was I forget what we were doing. Anyway, we stopped at a park to have a picnic. And so Meg, you were there? Yeah, you remember that? And so there were some uh, high school boys playing basketballers. Yeah, yeah. So Megan is like, you know, looking at, checking them out. And then I said to her, Megan, what do you think they're going to look like when they're 80 years old? And she just went. You know, connecting this like good looking teenage boy with what they're going to look like later if they live that long was too much for her. You know, she, she, she couldn't grok that. You know, how could that happen? Yeah. But I think many people, when they fall in love and get married, they don't consider that either. Yeah, and if the person they fell in love with was 80 years old and, and, you know, you're standing there getting married and you're, you know, 20-something and they're 80, you know, it's like they're not so good-looking anymore. And then you really see how much attraction is due to your hormones and... (laughs) And not to, you know, how much you, you think that there is such a wonderful person. It's just, you know, you're, when you're that age, you're, you're nutty. Yeah? I mean, we've all been that age, yeah? Were you nutty? I, I mean, we're all just like raging hormones. Okay. So, um, yeah, so when it talks about things disintegrating, it's it's saying, you know, whatever you think is beautiful now is not going to stay that way. Yeah. And not only are they going to get old, but you're going to get old, you know, and you may still think you're really attractive, but other people are going to look at you and go, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. My sister told me, um, you know, that she really sees now, she's in her 50s, mid-50s or something, um, and she said, she told me, this was a number of years ago even, that now when she goes into stores, it's very hard to get people to help her. When she was younger, you know, the guys came to help her really easily in a store. But now she's older and, you know difficult to to have somebody show you where the peanut butter is or <laughs> yeah so but you know we never think oh i'm going to look like that huh? but uh this is why on our the abbey webpage when we have everybody we have a picture of them as a baby and then before they ordain and then when they ordain yeah just to to see that things arise and cease, yeah, all the time. 
my teachers used to talk about aging, you know, and give this whole description of aging about, especially, you know, because your body's difficult to move. And, and I remember very clearly, and, you know, when you go to sit down, you just fall in the chair like a bag of potatoes. <laughs> and this whole, you know, how everything is aching and you move with so much difficulty and and how if you knowing what you look like now you you could you looked in the mirror and there you were when you were you know 60 70 80 whatever it was how you would like be horrified and faint or run away screaming or um you know whatever it is and then of course the description with the wrinkles and the gray hair and all the barnacles yeah yeah (laughs) This is what my, my, I just went to the dermatologist, so this is what they call, you know, because who can, who can pronounce keratosis? There's so many keratoses. <laughs> they all have these weird names, and who can pronounce? So they just say barnacles. So, <laughs> so that's good enough. I can understand barnacles. I have lots of them here. Okay. And so sometimes your barnacles need to be burned off, so they burn them off. Um, okay, but but they, I remember my teacher saying that and thinking, yeah, probably, you know, that will happen, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, sometimes you look in the mirror and you go, that doesn't look like the picture of me from 60 years ago. <laughs> As if you think it should, you know, but it doesn't. And then the first time you sit down like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> Have you ever sat down and felt like your body was just like a sack of potatoes, just going boom, you know? Yeah, it's true. You young ones are laughing. Just you wait. (laughs) What'd you say? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's an interesting thing, you know, because, uh, yeah. See, that's where being a monastic is very helpful because when you ordain, you get rid of a lot of those things that accentuate your beauty to start with. And you start changing your mind so you're not so attached to that kind of stuff. I'm always wondering, you know, when they're going to have one of us on the red carpet, and, you know, at <laughs> some of these big galas, you know, because the people, what they dress up, what they wear at these things, it looks like Halloween to me. <laughs> they wear such weird things. Unbelievable. Yeah. So we, we would fit in. We would look actually quite 
conservative. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, one guy at this last thing, I don't know, he came in in some big coat, cape, and they peeled the cape away, and he was in armor. And then they took off the armor, and then he was in some kind of skin-tight thing. And yeah, so we're, we're kind of normal and conservative, aren't we? Huh? Okay. So this center circle, yeah, you look at the center circle on there or in your book on what page was it? Two no the two Yeah, two sixteen. Okay. So the center circle contains a pig, a snake, and a rooster, signifying the three poisons of ignorance, animosity, and attachment, respectively. So the pig is ignorance, yeah, the snake is animosity, and the rooster is attachment. Why is the rooster attachment? Have you ever seen a rooster chase hands across so each animal has the tail of another animal in its mouth, indicating that they mutually reinforce each other. Yeah, they're in a circle. Yeah, probably the, uh, let's, I would say probably the pig, yeah, is biting, uh, oh, yeah, it's biting the, the tails of the rooster and the snake. In other uh, ones, it, I think the pig bites the tail of the rooster who, who bites the snake. Okay. Oh, although in some paintings, the tails of the snake and rooster are in the pig's mouth. Okay, that's what we have. Showing that ignorance is the root of all afflictions. The next circle has two halves. Okay, so you can see that. Yeah, the left half, as we look at the painting, is light with happy beings ascending to fortunate rebirths. The right side is dark with suffering beings descending to unfortunate rebirths. The imagery indicates that dependent on ignorance, we create virtuous and non-virtuous karma that lead to agreeable and disagreeable results. Okay, so you can look on the picture here. It looks like, I don't know what the guy in the bottom is doing. Then it looks like a warrior and then a deva. What's the guy on the bottom doing on page 216 with the long hair? Anyway, him. Then on the other side, Okay, at the top you have an oxen and then uh, a, a naked human being. Maybe that's supposed to be a preta. And then, I don't know what the guy at the bottom is. Huh? A hell being? Yeah. They, d they depict these all in anthropomorphized ways, but I don't know if they actually look like that. Okay, 
So these births are the okay. Uh, these births are the five classes of beings. Actually, that's in the next circle around. Yeah, the next circle around. So the inner circle of the animals. Then you have beings going down and coming up. Then they're different rebirths. Then the next one is the one that has the different uh, realms of being. So these births are the five classes of beings, devas, including asuras, humans, animals, hungry ghosts, and hell beings. They are shown in the next circle, which is divided into five sections. Okay. As you can see. The outer, yeah. Can you see those? It's interesting to go and look very closely and then identify which realm is is which. Uh, The outermost circle has 12 sections, each one illustrating one of the 12 links of dependent origination. That's the outermost circle. And then the Lord of Death is holding the whole thing. Above and outside the wheel, clutched the wheel clutched by the Lord of Death, is the Buddha pointing to a radiant full moon. He shows us the path to nirvana. The two verses cited above encourage us to follow this path to free ourselves from all dukkha forever. Okay, then the next section is about dependent arising. So, In terms of translation, I usually use the term dependent origination for the 12 links and dependent arising for talking about all the other kinds of cause and effect things. Okay. Other people, I've noticed like Jimpa uses dependent origination for all of the things. you know, the 12 links and everything else. So there may be different ways of translating. So dependent arising is one of the most essential teachings of the Buddha. He expressed its overriding principle, which is, when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. So the this is the cause, the that is the effect of that cause. Okay, so when this exists, that comes to be. So this is speaking, you know, more generally, if you, um, I don't know, what can we say as an example? When... um, When fake news exists, misunderstandings come uh, come to be. Yeah, with the arising of this, that arises. Yeah. So if you have a seed, the arising of the seed, then if it receives the proper uh, nourishment, a sprout is going to arise. When this does not exist, okay. So if you're born in a uh, what we were talking about before, one of the realms where uh, you can't steal, yeah, because the 
bodies are made of light. When that, when uh, you know, uh, material property does not exist, then stealing doesn't come to be. And with the cessation of this, that ceases. So with the cessation of our um, <clears throat> our our body and mind being connected, our life ceases. Okay. So when the causes and conditions for something are assembled, that thing will arise. The Buddha employs this principle in a variety of circumstances, including his discussion of social turmoil and social benefit. So this principle goes for everything. When this exists, that's going to come into be. However, since the Buddha's main concern was with sentient beings' bondage in samsara and liberation from it, one of his main teachings on conditionality is the 12 links of dependent origination. These 12 describe the causal process for rebirth in samsara and the unsatisfactory experiences that ensue. They also show the way to liberation from this vicious circle. Okay, so if you start with the center, you know, the, the pig, the rooster, and the, the snake, that's showing kind of uh, the beginning of one set of 12 links, you know, how we start with ignorance and then afflictions arise. And then people create actions. Out of afflictions come actions. And out of actions, then the next circle, yeah, some people are falling to lower rebirths, some people are coming up to higher rebirths. And then where are they reborn? In the next circle, which has the five or six realms in it. Okay, and then the 12 links, each link is illustrated on the outermost circle there. And so it looks like a very interesting picture, but this is actually a description of our state of being. It's not something theoretical. It's not a picture. This is our lived experience. Yeah, And if you can really see it as your lived experience, then you get a lot of energy to practice the path. Okay, so the 12 links are prominent topics for study and contemplation in both the Pali and Sanskrit traditions. The Buddha spoke of them extensively in Pali sutras, especially in the connected discourses on causation, and in the Sanskrit sutras, particularly in the Rice Seedling Sutra. Okay. Geshe uh, Tapke wrote a book called the Rice uh, Seedling Sutra. The sutra is rather short. There's an English translation of it. And then he wrote a whole commentary about different kinds of, uh, de- excuse me, different kinds of dependent arising. Okay. An extensive um, explanation of dependent origination according to the Pali tradition is found in chapter 17 of the Path of Purification by Buddha Gosa, 
as well as in the Abhidharma texts. In the Sanskrit tradition, extensive commentary can be found in a Sangha's Compendium of Knowledge, uh, Chapter 5 of Maitreya's Ornament of Clear Realizations, explains how to meditate on the 12 links in forward and reverse orders. And that's just seeing the, uh, the causality going this way or starting the, with the results and going backwards. Okay. And chapter 3 of Vasubandhu's Treasury of Knowledge, that's also in the Sanskrit tradition, uh, that contains the Vibhasaka's explanation of the 12 links. Chapter 24 and 26 of Nagarjuna's treatise on the Middle Way established the conventional existence of the 12 links while refuting their inherent existence. So it's uh, Sankhapa elaborates on this in The Ocean of Reasoning, Reasoning, which is in English. The Buddha presented dependent origination in a variety of ways. Sometimes he began with the twelfth link, which is aging or death, and worked backwards, you know, aging and death. What was it caused by birth? Okay, birth, what was it caused by renewed existence? Renewed existence, what it was it caused by clinging and going backwards? Okay, so this uh, perspective begins with our present experience of aging and leads us to inquire to how we arrived at it. And so we trace the causes back. Other times, the Buddha began with ignorance and explained the links in a forward order, culminating with aging and death. So from ignorance, then you have karma, then you have the consciousness, and so on. In yet other sutras, the Buddha began in the middle of the sequence and went either forward to aging and death or backward to ignorance. This is really interesting too, yeah. And so he he had all these different ways of explaining it to emphasize different points to people. Although the Buddha did not explicitly teach emptiness when he taught the Twelve Links, he set out the basis on which we can understand it. Okay, that basis. Everything that exists dependent on other factors is empty of having its own inherent nature. And everything that is empty exists dependent on other factors. So when you study the wheel of life, you're studying this whole causality thing. Yeah. And if you can really penetrate it, then you really you see that none of these factors, none of the links, can exist inherently because they all arose from causes and conditions. They all disintegrate and become something else. Yeah. So they are empty of having their own inherent nature. <clears throat> Contemplating the first level of dependent arising, causal dependence, helps us to create the causes for higher rebirth by abandoning non-virtue and practicing virtue. Okay, so 
when we usually first study dependent arising, we hear about causal dependence, which is what the Wheel of Life is talking about. But causal dependence also, uh, you know, is just the, the whole teaching on karma is about causal dependence. Yeah, when you create, when you do this action, you get this result. When you do that action, you get this result. Yeah. And so in the uh, Wheel of Sharp Weapons, you know, it's so beautifully articulated, the, the verses that Dharma Rakshita wrote, um, you know, just saying, like, if you have this kind of behavior, then this is going to happen to you. Yeah. So don't be surprised when that happens, if it's something you don't like. And if you don't like it, then stop creating the cause. Yeah. And then in another part of the book, he, start, he starts with the results and then traces back to what kind of causes they, they uh, uh, came from. Okay. So it's, it's just all is showing that nothing, nothing exists on its, under its own power. Nothing can set itself up. Yeah. Everything is dependent. And, you know, especially with condition phenomena, uh, being dependent means they're impermanent and they're changing moment by moment. And if you really think about that, then it makes you ask questions in your life about how you spend your time and what you're doing and, you know, are you creating virtue or non-virtue or whatever. Okay. Contemplating the first level of dependent arising, causal dependence, helps us to create the causes for higher rebirth by abandoning non-virtue and practicing virtue. Contemplating a deeper level of dependent arising, dependent designation, leads us to realize emptiness and to attain liberation and awakening. Actually, that needs to be reworded a little bit because uh, causal dependence actually is uh, one of the things that produces, contemplating causal dependence is one of the things that leads us to have uh, our first inferential understanding of emptiness. You know, not always causal dependence, but it's one of the prominent ones that creates that. Some, pe- for, uh, some people it's dependent on, on parts. Okay? And then dependent designation figures in there, but we cannot, we do not uh, understand subtle dependent designation or what they call um, mere dependent designation until after we've realized emptiness. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so that first sentence, I hope, Venerable um, Damjari, you're listening. (laughs) Or Venerable Damjari, maybe you can note it too. You know, it needs to be revised. And contemplating a deeper uh, level of dependence, dependent designation leads us to realize emptiness. Um... There's different levels of dependent designation, and uh, that sentence needs to be, you know, altered to, I have to think about how to do it in 
as few words as possible because publishers don't like when you change things in the middle of a page or even at the end of a page. Whether we seek a higher rebirth or higher goodness, meaning um, uh, liberation or enlightenment, understanding dependent arising is important and the teachings on it are precious. Yeah. So when His Holiness, you know, as he often says on these, these short things that he's doing during COVID, you know, like there, there's a problem. Praying is not going to uh, heal the whole thing. Pray, praying has a good influence, but it's not going to be the thing that's going to heal it. We need action. So what he's doing there is really pointing out what causes create what kind of results and what kind of results do you get from what kind of causes. And then we need to figure out what kind of causes we're going to create. You know, and look, you know, evaluate the causes we're creating now and see if we're actually creating the kind of causes for what we want to attain. Either either in this lifetime, you know, as a society, or karmically for the kinds of karmic uh, rebirths we will have. Although the realization of the emptiness of inherent existence will free us from samsara, we cannot dive into meditation on emptiness immediately. We must first eliminate coarse wrong conceptions, such as believing that our lives and our dukkha are just random occurrences or that they arise from an external creator or from another incompatible cause. Contemplating causal dependence through the 12 links helps us to counteract these misnomers and to become familiar with dependent arising, uh, the principal reason proving the emptiness of true existence. In the Rice Seedling Sutra, the Buddha said, Monastics, he who understands this rice stock can understand the meaning of dependent arising. Those who, know, uh, those who know dependent arising know the Dharma. Those who know the Dharma know the Buddha. This is a really famous quotation and uh, requires some unpacking. But right now, I want to pause and see if there's questions or comments. I really appreciate the presentation in chapter six and the complexity of how karma is interacting with all of these other laws of causality. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have when, you know, in teachings or scriptures, stories are presented that are illustrations of karma and seem to conflict with physical, biological, chemical causality. Like, how can I work with mm -hmm. that when I'm reading a story that seems to conflict? Can you give me an example? The sea monster with 18 heads? Yeah, what about him? I don't, I've never seen evidence that sea monsters with 18 heads exist. But that's, that's just because you're looking on this earth in the small area mm -hmm. of things that you've happened to see in your life. Mm -hmm. And you haven't seen the body bottom of the seas or what's up in the skies mm -hmm. or even all the, the you, you know, other living beings. And then, like I said, with our beginning motivation, 
I mean, there's a huge universe out there and so many realms of existence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't know what these beings look like or what kind of sense faculties they have. I mean, there's probably some that don't even have heads. There's sense organs or, you know, other places. Okay? Yeah, so don't just think of, like, what you've seen with your own eyes, because our uh, experience of this vast universe of phenomena is so small, really. Um, I have a couple of things. One thing is with the new um, environmental movement with so many young people who are pointing the finger and blaming um, the other two generations before them. Yeah. Um, from the Buddhist perspective, of course, we know that it's not <laughs> just these two generations, that those who experience that have the karma to experience that so and have created the causes for that. Um, and that will perpetuate... Uh, yeah, this kind of anger that they hold on and the attachment to that view, right, will just continue the suffering and mm -hmm. um, the creation of more um, destruction. I just wanted to point that out because, uh, um, yeah, I find it with, uh, important. It's, it's a dilemma for myself when I'm watching that and, and even talking with people who have that view but don't have the Buddhist view. Um, I yeah. feel like it's a dead end yeah. symbol. And I don't know yeah. really how to talk with them then. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that view is quite narrow because mm -hmm. they're not seeing all the causes and conditions. And also, that view thinks that anger is good mm -hmm. and is going to bring some kind of good result. And it doesn't. Everybody is just getting angry at each other instead of coming together and making some good policies that will work for everybody. Yeah, but the new rage is to be, it's not a new rage, it's an old rage that is really popular now, which is anger. Yeah, anger, you know, let's find somebody to hate, somebody to be angry at, somebody who doesn't appreciate us, who makes fun of us, who disrespects us, who is the cause of all of our problems. And that's what people spend their whole lives doing, and you wind up miserable, and none of the problems get solved. Yeah? And what's interesting from what you said, the young people that get mad at the previous generations, they could have been those people in the previous generations who ignored the environment and started causing all the pollution. Yeah. Yeah? Mm. So... Yeah, luckily, luckily, not every young person is angry, <laughs> I believe. But um, the second thing is, there is this, um, there are projects such as um, a genetic uh, manipulation of cre creating races that have died out, um, in the with the intention to protect further um, degradation, such as in Siberia um, to um, reintegrate mammoths by um, genetically manipulating, um, taking genes and uh, using elephants for creating a new race. Um, a in new order race to of human beings or a new species of... Mammoths. Mammoths. Yeah. Okay. For yeah. example. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't call them a race. Oh, They're okay. A species. A species. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. And um, so 
how would you think about it? <laughs> it's um, for me um, as a human being to manipulate nature. Um, you know, it's for me ethically uh, questionable. And even if the motivation is to protect the environment, but um, if we manipulate, we don't know what comes out, how that will develop. Yeah. Well, I think mammoths are extinct now. Aren't yes, they? but they think they can. Um, they, yeah. yeah. And then and then we'll have problems with mammoths. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you have a. There's one thing with having a dog poop in your yard, but having a <laughs> mammoth poop in your yard. There's going to be some really unhappy people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I think there's better things to spend our, our human intelligence on. Yeah. But, you know, people... Yeah, I often wonder the people who are interested in this kind of thing, you know, like the people who wonder if a computer can ever become a sentient being, if, you know, they're working the science to, you know, make mammoths or computers or mammoth computers, <laughs> you know, then if they're going to be born as one of those beings, you know, because they're so interested in it this lifetime. I just wanted to thank you because I imagine that this section that we've just gone through is really interesting and answers a lot of questions that you don't find in typical texts. And I imagine a lot of this information came because you asked His Holiness questions. So thank mm. you very much. So you mean just this last recent This section, section? on karma, instinctual behavior in our bodies. Ah, that, oh, that's okay. very interesting the way it's organized. Yeah, yeah, that was from His Holiness. Yes, but I yeah. imagine it was from your questions with His Holiness. Oh. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, his holiness got into it because I was asking questions and then I remember we were standing outdoors and he was looking at some flowers and he said, yeah, I don't think our karma caused these flowers, but they're beautiful and we enjoy them. And that what comes from our karma. <laughs>